you're willing to let people die so that you're not inconvenienced. That how do you separate that? How is that any how is that not precisely what was happening during chattel slavery? How were the wealthy people who were the only people that are allowed to vote and were the only people that were white and were the only people that were men able to get away with such shit where someone has to work from sunup to sundown to death? It does make you think it does you do sit there and you do think, how do you get away with that? You get away with it because it's a system and a mm-hmm. structure that was created to maximize profit at the expense of lives. That's what that's what America is. And until people are able to sit in that space and see themselves, it will never change, right? And the issue, like why I brought up, you know, I like, you know, to be provocative, is Jeff, Jeff Bezos of white supremacists. If we can ask that of Jeff Bezos and we can ask that of ourselves as well. Right. Right? How am I, I'm not white, but how am I supporting white supremacy? Uh-huh. How are you, you know, Sean Joyce, supporting white supremacists? Am I a white supremacist? If I can't tell this between what I'm, how I look and how I behave and how I show up and how I demonstrate, there's an issue. Welcome to the Underground Comedy Podcast with Sean Joyce. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com. Hey, what's up? Thanks for checking us out. Well, there are no live shows because you know why. Our guest today is Russ Green. Russ is a great DC comic and former guest on the podcast. This is our first podcast in a long time. Underground Comedy has been shut down for almost three months due to the pandemic, and I wasn't planning on recording any episodes while we're shut down. We're all stuck inside, and I mean, what comedy is there to talk about anyway? But over the past two weeks, as the country has stood up in response to the murder of George Floyd, I thought that maybe there is something that we could talk about, even if it's not related to comedy. For years, I would spend every weekend hanging out with comics and having great conversations about their experiences in comedy. I started the podcast in hopes that other people might find value in those conversations the same way I did. During all those years, I was also having conversations with Russ about racism and slavery and the lack of value placed on black lives in America. So last Wednesday, I started thinking that maybe it would make sense to sit down with Russ and share one of those conversations. We ended up getting together Friday afternoon to record this. We were trying to be responsible, so we're outside. Hopefully, the nature sounds are not too distracting. I wanted to talk with Russ because he thinks very deeply about what it means to be black in America. And he's helped me to start to realize what it means to be white in America. If you're a white person and you talk with Russ, he will challenge you and he will make you uncomfortable and he will push you to re-examine your beliefs. Every time I talk with Russ, he brings up ideas that seem to go too far, that seem to go past what I know to be true. But over and over again, as I take in more information and gain experience, I realize that he was right. Ideas that I thought were incorrect or kind of radical the first time I heard them, I now take for granted as being obviously true. Of course, every single aspect of this country today has been impacted by slavery. Even in this conversation, he brings up ideas that I haven't internalized yet. Because I'm not just going to go along with anything that Russ says. I want my worldview to be based on what is true. And Russ has helped me to reduce the ignorance of my worldview probably as much as anyone I've met. So I hope this conversation will mean something to you as we all try to figure out what we need to do to address the white supremacy built into our way of life. I'm not a, like an odd pet, like, aficionado. Me neither. But I do have a bunny. Oh, you do? Yeah. And I want a goat now. I want a baby goat. Well, what are you going to (laughs) do when it turns into a regular goat? (laughs) Hopefully I'll have some more land by then. I'm not going to get it before I have like a, you know, sizable yard. So you want to get a big yard? Yeah, fuck yeah. You want to live far away? I have four kids. Where, how far away do you want to live? See, far is relative. But if you go as, <laughs> yes. like, as far as only, okay. there's plenty of spots with land, like, okay. like massive yards. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's what, not even a 40-minute drive from here? Yeah. So, so that's your plan? I don't have, I've been doing this thing where I'm, like I said, an intention, uh-huh. but I'm detached from the outcome of things. That's good. So it's like, I would like to have a yard, and I know that the universe is abundant and it could provide me with a large yard. Yeah. And I'll get it. 
because I set the intention to when it's going to happen and like all of that other stuff. That's for the universe to figure out. Yeah, I need to straighten out my uh, my perspective uh, on that type of stuff, man. How do you mean? I, it's just hard for me to 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 be that positive and uh, that detached from you know really clinging on to what I'm trying to do and what I want to happen. You know, it's heavy, bro. I'm sorry to hear, man. <laughs> yes, I was that guy. Being controlling is very hard to wrangle. Yeah, it is because the you know the effort required is to let go and right. when you're letting go you're letting go of expectation and expectation is like <laughs> what we've been programmed to believe <laughs> you know what I'm saying? is yeah, what for we're sure. entitled to yeah for sure so for me it's like there's so much peace in being present of course and when you're trying to control something you know that you're not being healthy and so you're ruining your moment you're ruining that present moment I know I ru- I've ruined my whole all my moments up to this point. <laughs> Almost all my moments have been ruined. I've had a couple. I've had some, you know, here and there. Right. Some patches of presence. We'll see that you're still that person, and that person is still within you. Right. So you could tap into it. I remember thinking uh, about maybe about eight, eight or ten years ago. I was like, oh, I'm getting too locked into like trying to do things and uh and i'm not focusing on uh yeah being present and and trying to meditate regularly to to in order to do that yeah and i remember having that thought and then i just haven't gone back to it since then you just did no but i haven't but i haven't had the int- i haven't tried to do it i haven't sat and i haven't sat and tried to be present since then you know so what i'm saying I get that. And like I I'm you. like I'm going down a bad path. I re- I realize the, because you know if you're if you're doing if you if you're like meditate regularly. You know, once you start once you start getting off that track, you know you notice it. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I'm I'm going down the wrong path. Sure. But I remember the first couple of steps, and I was like, I'll get back to it, and then I never did. I feel like beginning like a mindfulness practice is like planting a seed. Uh-huh. Right? And sometimes you're going to forget to water the plant. Uh-huh. Right? But it's still like what's the thing I just read today? Even though you can't see the blossom, uh-huh. the roots may be doing some integral work. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> like if it took 8 years for that seed to germinate and now is this moment when you recognize that you want to get back to being more present and aware Uh uh-huh then so be it that's your journey dude yeah that's my journey man (laughs) (laughs) i just gotta accept that i don't know i like i've I've it's eight or nine years ago gosh almost 10 years ago is when we both started comedy yeah yeah nine years ago i think yeah so well i told tim miller i don't count this year because (laughs) obviously we're we're not performing i mean if we're gonna do that there's lots of years that i wouldn't count but (laughs) But it was nine, uh, like uh, nine years and a, and a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, when we started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I think it's really difficult to decouple. Uh, <laughs> comedy from expectations. So like when yes. we're talking about now having expectations and having to like detach ourselves from the outcome of stuff, it's it it took this moment, for me to even get there. Right. It took yeah. this time that we're in for me to even be like oh wow this shit is out of my control yeah what do you f- do you feel like uh how do you feel about comedy when you think about it now you think very about it differently what's th- i want to say affectionately and very like um nostalgic almost uh-huh yeah sure <laughs> like um i remember the last time i performed uh-huh i remember what i was wearing that day I remember my friends coming to see me, them buying me drinks. I remember um, catching up with this sister from Howard that I hadn't seen in 20 years. And she's like drop dead gorgeous. And her getting to see me perform. I remember being on U Street and being so happy to be there, right? And like when I think about things that I want to say now, especially in light of like all the atrocities that we're witnessing routinely, I want to have that outlet yeah, to stand in a stage with a spotlight and to talk to people openly 
about what I'm feeling and working through. Have you thought about like uh, how people will receive it when you get a chance to go back on stage? I always think, and I've <laughs> I always think about what I'm gonna say first. Right, of course. <laughs> and the only thing that's come to me as of late is like, I can't believe we're all ready to die for this moment. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah. Like how exciting it'll be to be in public again, but how precarious it also is. Like the nature of standing in a like a cellar right oh yeah with so many strangers and there's no way to tell like there's no rhyme or reason for who is where in what place with you know the overbearing coronavirus it feels like that um you remember those like depression commercials for the prescription drugs where they show that like dark cloud following the yeah, person yeah. around uh -huh. that's what coronavirus feels like <laughs> you know what I'm yeah <laughs> so i don't know I, I feel a lot about well like apart apart from that like yeah. imagine it Imagine it's gone. Sure. Because well, because I always am thinking, as as all, all the time oh, for years for from producing the shows, I'm always thinking, how's this gonna change the audience? Mm. How's it gonna? Because I'm always put myself in the crowd's place because it's e it's easy for me to think like a comic, but I gotta think like the crowd in order to book the shows and and guide the younger comics and everything and so when the when big events happen i think about how the crowd's going to react to because comics are going to talk about it and sure. how, how they're going to react and over the past i don't know four years five years there's been a lot of and in each year more and more so there's been a lot of com like social commentary about racial issues sure and especially black comics that really want to talk about it and they talk about it a lot and sometimes you know depending on how how they go about it sometimes a white crowd can feel kind of uncomfortable from it and you know i just started thinking over the past like even two days that i feel like the crowds are going to be more open like they're they're going to be ready to hear it now that's very aspirational yeah, and I know, I know that's optimistic. And it's extremely optimistic. But, I don't know, this is gonna, <laughs> this is Russ Green. But, I, I have never had any faith in white people. Sure. Right? And that comes from lived experience. Right. And the DNA that is within me from my ancestors after 500 years of turmoil. And my, our people being destroyed. So white people have always had an opportunity to look at something in a different way and mm -hmm. feel different about things. And I feel like it would be almost hopeful to the point of absurdity yeah, right. to think that this would be the moment that white people become enlightened. I have decoupled myself from any expectation that white people are going to be delivered in this moment. What I do hope is that, if anything, black and brown people realize that we're really all we got. And if white people want to come along in allyship, whatever form they show up in, I hope that we can not become so expectant that, that that's going to be the way, right? right? I hope that we learn to build solidarity within one another and give less of a fuck what white people think about what we're doing, thinking, or, you know? Yeah. Or feeling. I, I don't... I have a real struggle with this notion that, b that white people are be going to be enthused about fighting for black lives and far too often white people fail to realize hu black humanity, right? Mm -hmm. like, like, like when you fight for black rights, you're fighting for human rights. We are human beings mm -hmm. living a human experience where you're constantly seeing us being accosted and tortured and destroyed, killed, murdered at the hands of the state. So this idea that I'm, I'm a, I've, I've ever been concerned what white people think about what I have to say when I'm on stage is it almost feels like like I get your position because right. you're the booker, you're the producer, right. you're the person that creates the event and you're very excited about making, I know that you've spoken about this, you know, ad nauseum, I always want to have the best possible show, right? right? I want to have the best possible performance. But that's not solely up to me, right? Like it's a no, it's no, a no. combined experience of the shared space, the energy that's in the room, and you know what comes to bear. Like 
I don't. I've had to endure a lot of white people being aghast at what I've had to say. Yes. And then becoming so enamored with me as a result that they want to talk to me for an hour after the show. Uh-huh. Right? So a lot of <laughs> um even like when I you know, when I was talking to, you know, my, my wife about it, I still have no idea what to call, you know, her at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um she was like, why do white people like you? Why are they so, like, fascinated by you? And it even came up in marriage counseling. Like, we were, I was talking to my therapist about it. And she offered, of course, because she's a black woman, she offered that the experience of hearing somebody talk so pointedly about racial strife and aggression and, you know, this, this like, slap, <laughs> this disregard for human life, you know, and human rights, it's cathartic for white people yeah. because white people don't normally and routinely talk about and engage these type of topics with one another, let alone with the person of color. Right. Right. And I've been really working hard not to say person of color because I like black and brown. I think that's way more descriptive. And it also eliminates the idea that there are black people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So this, I don't know. What eliminates I'm, the idea? When you say people of color, when you're talking about black people, it takes, it takes away the face of what's happening. Right. Right. So it's like if I said George Floyd, a person of color, was choked to death in the street after, you know, police officers and knelt on his back for eight and a half minutes. It like covers up the specific racism. Exactly. Yeah. This happened to a black father of two. Whose wife will never get to see him again. Right. That's descriptive. And you know this for comedy. Comedy is a very descriptive like audio auditory experience that you see in your mind visually. So the better I am at crafting a story or and or a joke, the more descriptive language I use, the more powerful the narrative becomes and the more engaged emotionally you are in the story. And that, that's why it's important to constant and it's a constant conversation, right? About like what words are gonna be used to describe things. Precisely. And people get so upset about you know, I mean, white people feel like attacked for like using the wrong word and they're, you know, it makes you insecure because you don't want to, you don't want to speak incorrectly about it, especially like liberal white people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the common enemy. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but liberal white people. But like, you know, enemy. but like you're saying, you know, that, you know, people, they, they got that. They were like, well, let's let's say people of color. So it's, it includes other people who are being discriminated against. But then it is obvious that. It, there is a different, there is a specific racism directed toward black people and a specific history in the United States that, that this is, that's what this is about. This, this past two weeks is spe- specifically about black people. So, yes. And I think white people should learn to sit in their discomfort and awkwardness more. Yeah. To sit in the space where they're made to feel ashamed of what happens when they witness black and brown people being destroyed and they know that it's at the hands of white people white people with a license to kill with the authority by the state to murder at their discretion right and that they know that those same police officers do not police their communities i think that that's a place that white people should learn to sit in and stew frankly yeah about how to how to use their privilege and power to speak passionately about what's happening with one another because white liberals are the people with the keys right uh, white liberals often occupy the p- position of like doorkeeper gatekeeper da 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 yeah yeah but they also are the people that des- are most desirous of being heard first that's what the whole Karen movement is about, uh-huh. right? So it's like, I have been <laughs> inconvenienced by the news cycle because all I hear is about these deaths and killings. Yeah, I would like to just go out one day and turn on the news and hear a lovely story about a kitten or a puppy. So would I, Karen. <laughs> I'm saying yeah. it's a lot of like it's a. I feel like there's a lot of layers to the understanding. And so you have to go through you have to go through each layer one at a time to go deeper into understanding it. And so and I think why white people do feel comfortable with you 
I mean, I think it's just your personality. You're very open. You want to talk about things. You want to have a conversation. It's clear you want to have a conversation. You're not trying to make people feel bad. You're trying to, even if you're saying kind of harsh things about white people, it never comes off to me like you're trying to make me feel bad. You know, it's just you're trying to get me the information. So we've been having these conversations for nine years. And, and it, you know, each time it's a little uncomfortable when I have to go through the next, you know, at first, you know, I just, uh, the police brutality, you know, I, you know, I was aware of it in general, but I didn't really, I just didn't understand it until the cell phone videos, you know, there's a Rodney King video, but that's just one thing. Sure. And you're like, okay, so I, I get that it happens and I get that that was really bad. But then when you start to see the cell phone videos, which that was probably five years ago or or, or more sure. when, when those started kind of, kind of becoming a regular thing. And when you see them repeatedly, it's undeniable. Like you, you really viscerally understand it in a way I, for myself that I didn't before that. Because you f- you're forced to feel it. Right. Right. The, the way that the structure is set up is it creates barriers for, y- for you to wit from, for to prevent you from witnessing things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, before a George Floyd and a Breonna Teller, right? There was Sandra Bland and there was Corinne Gaines and there was Terrence Crutcher, right? All people that were murdered by the state. This this notion that until I see it, it's not real for me mm-hmm. is is the beauty of being put in a place of privilege, right? is the elegance of the structure of white supremacy, right? Um, I have never been able in my black life, and I didn't like come out of my mother's womb thinking I'm black. Like I don't wake up every morning sure, and be like course. I'm black, right? <laughs> but um, the thing that the things that I experience and I witness my children experience lets me know at a very early age that they are becoming activated, if you will, right? Yeah. And made aware of their blackness. It becomes very present. So something that was difficult for, you know, myself and my peers to struggle with in school was something as, as simple as talking about slavery and then all the heads in the room turned to you, right? So now for my child, you know, for my four children, particularly my son, who's seven, his teacher um, just this week introduced Black Lives Matter as part of the social studies curriculum. And I was so moved because, of course, I'm seeing this as a part of distance learning, mm-hmm. you know, in the Zoom call. And I'm hearing her talking about these things and and make these these children aware of the world that they're inheriting. Is the teacher white or black? And teacher's white. It's a white woman. Okay. And I'm thinking, good, because you know your place in this structure as a white woman and as a teacher. And what I know as a parent is that the most uh, most teachers are white women. Yeah. And most white women are indoctrinated into white supremacy, if all of them. So they teach white supremacy, even if it's like um, casual and passive, and yeah, they don't, they don't subconscious, realize. Subconscious, yeah. Right, subconscious, exactly. So for this woman to realize her place in it, and to and to use her moment and opportunity to do something, that's brilliant and beautiful, right? And it should be celebrated at least in within that classroom. But I was struck by my daughter, who's 10, who then said, my teacher hasn't done anything. And she also didn't celebrate Black History Month. Mm. And so then I have to go into my lecture series with my 10-year-old about why this woman is this way and this woman is that yeah. way and they're both white, right? And what that means for her mm-hmm. and why she's struck by the experience. So, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge white people for not knowing or not caring or you know being checked out because for 500 years white people didn't have to be checked in right right so if you told me for 500 years that i could kidnap torture rape abuse and destroy a person that was black you couldn't tell me in 2020 that i have to stop that shit now, right like this <laughs> what do you mean yeah. my great granddaddy did this shit you know what right. i mean it'd be very difficult for me to like come around well you gotta face also you have to face the history right you gotta face your relatives 
being a part of that. But you do that every day. But not not consciously. When it, when sure, you get, when sure. it's presented to you, especially people that live in the South that have like proud heritage, white people that are proud of their whatever, and they have to block it out. They have to block out what slavery was, what it meant to their town and what their town like. Speci- I mean, obviously it's everywhere. It's in the North and there it as well, but when it's that close to you and then they they build up structures to to reassure themselves that that is a a good history sure a history that's worth celebrating like sure. you have to like actively push back the other direction not to let that information in two things came up in my spirit when you were talking about that namely that there's no place in America where white people haven't inherited a legacy right that is that's not something to be proud of right and i think that having to confront that is important work right that's soul work um i argue with you about that we always argue when you first brought it up i was like i'm from pittsburgh my (laughs) my ancestors (laughs) they you know they they came like at the end of after slavery they were in a steel town it had nothing to do with slavery you know but uh, since then you know over the years it's like I, you know i've realized like oh there's tons of racism in pittsburgh there's tons of bad stuff that's happened um i'm sure that i have ancestors that were involved in something sure and you know, there's no nobody, ir- no one, n- no white people are immune to the to that history. Precisely, but the other part of that is being willing to sit in the discomfort of knowing that this is a shared history of American people, of a nation of people, right? And being deliberate about working to to deconstruct it, to deconstruct this system, the structure. Right, so you're a father now, and you have a lovely wife and a lovely home, and you live in you know in a neighborhood that's very diverse. At every moment, you have an opportunity to engage your daughter, and instruct her in a way that will that will make her aware of her place of privilege and how she can use that to provide access and opportunity for other people and to stand in the way of injustice with courage and boldly, even if she's afraid and uncomfortable, right? So um, even if it's difficult to go back because those people are long dead or to address people that you've written off who are known problematic people because you're just too uncomfortable during the holidays to talk to them about stuff. Right. Those are opportunities too. So for me, it's like, while we're struggling as a nation and and globally like at the macro level we're also struggling like at a micro level in our homes right like to for me it's just something as simple as um when my family when i have my children and my family comes over um there's literally no mention of trump in my household until they arrive i don't watch the news i don't talk about um him by name you know what I mean? I did in this podcast to be very like d- explicit. Um, I I scroll past every article where he's mentioned. I don't see his face, but I but I hear my children talk about it routinely and tease each other when they're being um, bad actors, right? Or yeah. they're misbehaving. You're being very with in, the, in our house. It's Trump Hitler. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> so it's like that's the standard insult. Trump. Yeah, Hitler. it's like if you're being um, like obnoxious and violent. Right. right then that's this is the label we have for you for me it's something as simple as like books um that are teaching kids about white supremacy and and television shows that are informing kids about identity and being being aware of who they are and not trying to intentionally label or categorize people but just accept them as they show up so like steven universe does that 
Like I saw this brilliant episode before I came over. This is how the universe works in synchronicity. Like Steven's um, a superhero, you know, for like people who don't watch, he's a superhero. And he's set apart from other people that are normal. And so a normal white person character in the show sees that he's a superhero and also wants to like learn more about it and discover more about it. And in the process of doing that, you know, Steven brings him into his household and introduces him to his other superhero family. And then the next scene, he's wearing a, a mock superhero costume, right? Okay. And it's such a brilliant way of showing how white people operate. It's, okay, I've entered into this space because I was curious and I wanted to be, to be more than I am. I want to do better than I am now. But without centering myself in this experience, I can't fully do it the way that I want to. And oh, it's right. not about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the, the hard part. It's like, how do I make this not about me? How do I use myself, my body, my spirit, my energy, my thoughts, my feelings in a space that will not provide me any advantage or yeah. any benefit beyond a good, that feeling a good spirit that day? Mm -hmm. and, and for me, the, that answer is, is really rhetorical. It's like, why isn't that enough to know that you were willing to use the privilege that's, that came to you so readily to help someone else? I think it's just uh, because you're not in the habit of thinking that way. You know, everybody, everybody a little bit is caught up I apart from racial things in their just their own perspective. Right. Sure. You're, you're you're doing everything for yourself. I mean, uh, you're you're trying to progress your career. You're raising your children, your work. You know, you're just focused on all your own stuff. You know, even if you do have interest in other things, 90 percent of the day you're for most people you're focused on yourself there are there are those selfless people that are focused on other that ha that have chosen those careers where they are fully outward looking sure um, but i think uh, for you know 90 percent of people they're, they're not that way so then when you have something like this it's it's really an extra stretch to give up your that perspective that you can that you start from I'm trying to think about what's so different about this experience for everyone besides the fact that we're in home, in our homes. And I think that we, when we texted about it, like, I think that's what I, what I offered. It's just like, it's appalling that even while we're trying to survive a global crisis, we're being terrorized. Yeah. Right? Um, but we've been being terrorized. Yeah, it's, it, there's never, there's no end to it. There, there was a time when we were not being terrorized around the 1400s. <laughs> now it's 2020 and we're still actively being terrorized. And so for me, it's just like, I'm thinking about what we have to do. I've been talking to my family very like passionately about like, maybe this is the time that we leave, right? Mm -hmm. um, and everybody's like, well, this is our country, we built it. And I'm sure, my ancestors felt that as well right. in the 1700s, 1800s, like when they were fleeing an institution, set out to destroy them. Like maybe we should think about perhaps, you know what I'm saying? Um, and it feels like, it feels like running away, right? In some capacity. But also it feels like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with liberating yourself from something that's set out to destroy you? And then quickly the answer comes. Well, we can't tell because then white people come get us again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a secret. Okay. <laughs> well, but the, also the reality is like, not only where would you run to, but where in the world are black people not being terrorized? Yeah. So it's like, it's it feels like you're defeated before you get started. But but to go back a bit, you were talking about how like everybody is um, driven to focus on themselves. There's nothing wrong with thinking about yourself first. There's nothing wrong with wanting to improve your station. But there is something wrong when it's almost effortless for you to do so at the expense of others. And I think that's what needs to be visited in, an, in a very direct way. Why is it so easy for some and so difficult for others? Right, I was talking to my friend, um, who was transitioning at the time and they offered if I don't work I don't eat 
and I'm homeless. So when we're applying for the same job, we don't have the same fight. Like, mm-hmm. like you may not get this opportunity, but another one is sure to come. People ha- have to be comfortable with me in the room, right? Just being around me. Uh-huh. And I have to endure the microaggressions coming from them. And obviously this is coming from, you know, uh, a person who has like their own crisis of identity, but uh, I'm looking to them like I'm black. What? Like <laughs> I also understand this, um, and I can I can I hear you. But I I'd had to appreciate the struggle. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, well, what can I do to support you in the struggle, and and how how can you support me in the, my struggle? And it's something as simple as holding space for one another and mm-hmm. recognizing that that we have a shared struggle and a common enemy. Right. You don't want your daughter to grow up in a world where she has to bear witness to people being executed. Of course. Right. You don't want your daughter to have um, thoughts that some people are less than others. Right. So how do you engage and how important is that to you? You know what I'm saying? That's the same way I enter spaces, um, whether it's performing, whether it's with my children, what have you. You know, when I was seven my parents were showing me lynchings pictures of lynchings and now i'm you know 41 i'm still seeing lynchings and i'm trying to comport with like when is it the right time to expose my children to this type of stuff Mm -hmm. um but it's not healthy it has a really profound impact on the psyche to watch people that look like you that you identify with the group that you identify with being destroyed and it makes you very upset and frustrated and I was talking to my therapist about this. And he said, frustration comes from unmet needs, right? I need to be able to walk around and live a purposeful life without fearing being destroyed. And I'm frustrated that that's not possible for me. So, of course, I'm angry. And then that makes white liberals uncomfortable. Why are you so angry? Don't you have, you have Obama, right? <laughs> I think the protests do, the protests give you if you if you're there at certain places at night, I think you can feel a little bit of it because you start to feel like there's so much tension and the the cops have been so unpredictable yeah during the protest especially yeah that it's the only time as a white person you feel like I could get attacked by the cops at any moment yeah. I could get attacked. And you're you're seeing other people around you getting attacked, and you're th- and you're just like, if I make a wrong move, or if I just happen to be standing in the wrong place at the wrong time, you feel it a little, and you're you're like, oh oh, that's what that's what it's constantly like. Yeah. So. Why did you go? I just it felt like uh, I don't know. Things just felt so bad. It just felt like. I felt it may it was just making me feel terrible just sitting at home like reading about it. And I just felt like if I was down there at least at least I would be doing something. At least I would be some some small action. So you were compelled to act. Absolutely, yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. So what now then? Yeah, what now? I don't know. I mean I mean maybe I'll go again. Um I mean I've donated money, um yeah, I try to think about what I can do. You know, I I don't want to like, I'm 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 kind of turned off by the like, long social media posts about stuff. Um, so yeah, yeah, what yeah, what is what is good to do? It's I I gotta think about it all the time. What what's the what's the right thing to do? Your parents are voters. Sure, of course. Um, your family members are voters. Yeah. Do you ever talk to them about um, politics? Yeah, I mean, I've raised raised my whole life being talked to about politics. Okay, and where do you guys sit? We're all very liberal. Okay. And do you know people that are not in your family or in your community that um, are not liberal? I mean, only a, only a handful. Beezer's got, <laughs> Beezer's got an uncle, my wife, uh, that is a Republican. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, he's real drawn to me. Like mm-hmm. he, he always wants to talk to me. Yeah, I think because he's like, because uh, he wants to be a businessman. Like he, he starts <laughs> these businesses, but they're they're kind of like scams. And uh, he he knows like, I have my own business, and uh, and but 
everyone in her family is a liberal. He's the only person that's not liberal. And then he'll start just on these Republican talking points. And and they kind of politely will like say stuff to him and I will crush him at the dinner. Because it is just, I love to crush him. I love to just have harsh arguments at their at their Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners because everyone is annoyed by it. Nobody wants to hear him talk, but they're all being too nice. And it's just... You know, anyway, so when people are like that, I love to, I love to just dismantle their arguments. I don't really get, I mean. Have you thought about why, though? Like, why that's so exciting for you to dismantle Because, you know, because, it, because right? on a, because in a, nor like, n normally, you know, you read the news, right? You, you see what Trump's doing. You, you're not interacting with it. You like I, I think it's wrong, but I'm not doing anything about it, right? And that's like a moment of oh, here I'm face to face with it. Be living in D.C., being in comedy, you know, I, I forget yeah. that there are Republicans. <laughs> I, and when I, I'm like, when you see somebody like with a MAGA hat on, it's like it's like seeing somebody like with a Nazi uniform on. It's like shocking. You're like, what the fuck? What is this? This is a this happens in real life. I used to say as a teenager that I would rather someone walk around with a Klan hood than stab me in my back, right? Uh-huh. Like after friending me or, you know, positioning themselves as an ally. Well, one thing I learned through my childhood and even through my adult white life is that white people will always disappoint you. Right? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, and it's the friends that disappoint you the most, right? Because you want to see them as better than like their nature, if you will. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I don't see white liberals as any different from white supremacists. I don't. Because at the end of the day, like white supremacy is still intact firmly, right? Mm -hmm. And I've seen what light, white liberals do that, that, that's very elegant to to make it appear that if, if there's like there's something there they're yeah, doing. Do you think it's they're providing cover for white supremacy? I think that they're enabling it. Uh huh. Um. Well, they, do you think they're making it uh, like dishonest in a dishonest way as opposed to a straightforward? Uh, think about gentrification. Explicit way. Uh huh. So gentrification is economic violence and cultural genocide. Okay. Right. So you move into a community that has been suffering and impacted by policies and policing and drugs that have been sanctioned that are acceptable in this area and all sorts of crime, right? And then as soon as you get there, all that stuff goes away. Uh-huh. And um, the people that move into those neighborhoods immediately find themselves on like the, the boards and stuff, <laughs> you know what I mean? The sure, city sure. councils of course. and put themselves in positions of power. They just, they just got, DC council members just got voted out from gentrification. Exactly. Right. So you see it. And so it's like, well, are there those Republicans in a, in D.C.? The you know, bluest place in America? Uh -huh. No, those aren't Republicans. And then we all we all feel ourselves like somehow like out of the the space of the like character actors, if you will. Or I heard one comic call the Klan like the WWF superstars of white supremacy. I thought that was so brilliant. Right. Because it's this thing about like me. I live in Maryland. Maryland is the number one state for imprisoning black men. Is that right? Yes. More so than Mississippi. D.C. per capita locks up more black and brown people than anywhere else in, this, in the nation. And controlled by a liberal government. Super liberal. So who gives a fuck what you categorize yourself as if the end state is the same? So like this is like the lessons like I walk through with my kids. And she's like, you know, Daddy, do you hate white people? You know, daddy, like, do you have any white friends? Like, daddy, da 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 And, like, she's looking through my wedding pictures. There's no white people there, right? <laughs> yeah. And she's like, and I'm like, baby, I want you to understand that white supremacy is a system and a structure. Uh -huh. And the end goal is white, male, Christian, straight, like, people in power. And everybody can be in service of that, whether you're black, brown, or what have you. And so if you're contributing to the end state, then you're in favor of white supremacy. And I think people need to start there before they think about anything else. Like, 
how can I actively work to dismantle something that's been in place for centuries? Mm-hmm. What do you think it's possible? I think all things are possible. Okay. But I think it takes, um, I think it takes belief, right? Like when well, you, you ask that question, that do you exists. believe that it's possible, mm-hmm. right? And also, yeah, to your point, do you, do you believe that it exists? I'm not having any more conversations with white people or anyone else who doesn't believe in white supremacy. So that was like, so that's why I say that there's like levels to it, right? You know, first you have to admit that there's slavery was an important part of this country, right? That's like the first <laughs> level, right? The that only reason this country, America as we call it, exists, right? Okay, so that's like the first level <laughs> of acceptance, right? Right. And then you have to accept like, well, this has probably impacted, that history in the past probably impacted me, right? Then you Then you have to realize it's impacting me today. Mm. Today I'm benefiting from it. Yeah. And then, you know, there's, you go through many levels and, and then the idea of white supremacy seems crazy at first. You're like, well, I know what white supremacists are. You know, the, those people seem like cartoon characters. You know, there's only, there's small amount and they're weird. You know, that's not what regular society is. And then you, you then you start to understand as you go deeper you start to understand okay oh i see everything is set up it's a all one big structure there you go that's set up to maintain the people at the top which are obviously white male that they're they're just maintaining their power and it's and it's really easy to see i think for white liberals right at this moment when you have like a white nationalist president and you have Republicans blatantly circumventing free elections and you're like, what are you, what are you like, how many elections do you think you can steal as your, as your constituency gets smaller and smaller and smaller? And, but it's like, it's all about holding on to the power and the same with the economic power too. Something you introduced me to, um, was the effort by the administration when they first came, in t- came into power to um, put in place and appoint federal judges. Oh, yeah. Fuck the system for years, right? And it made me think about, like, so much of our nation is focused on, like, punishment. Yeah. Right? Someone has to, like, suffer because of some property that was lost or what have you and black people are the property that was lost and we are also the people that are suffering like since we came here or we excuse me we were taken here forcibly and all throughout reconstruction and jim crow and even now in the prison industrial complex which holds more people in forced labor than ever was before in slavery right but then i have to like move beyond that and i say like well those are the character actors again, right? Who else is a white supremacist? And like this is, I think, where we like start really don't see eye to eye is like the when we start thinking about how capitalism, which is a children, a child of slavery, mm-hmm. right, is also keeping that system in place. Yeah. There's, so this is like a next level, right? Well, it's still like is like oh, how do you understand how how capitalism intersects with this? Let's make it. Let's let's take it. Um, let's start here. Is Jeff Bezos a white supremacist? I mean, y- right. So I would think no. Okay, good. All right. So let's. I'm, not, I'm saying good, but you know, we'll, yeah, yeah. We'll walk this story down, right? So no, Jeff Bezos is on track to be a trillionaire. That's twelve zeros by 2026. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos is probably possibly the the largest employer in the nation yeah I don't know but so and he has people working in distribution centers mm-hmm. for 12 hour days working for $17 an hour mm-hmm. and the reason I know this is because my best friend is one of those okay people every day they go in and they are screened for coronavirus they're put on protective um, uniforms and they're tracked with like a thermal scanner yeah to make sure their temperature is not like uh, off the chain while they're working He knows that people are doing this. He knows that, like, there are shitty schools, and he knows that there's sh- like, shitty, like, 
corporations that put people like in positions to pass bills and laws that fuck o- people over. He knows that he has enough money to pay people a decent wage, but he was one of the last people to come around to like the fight for 15. Yeah. He also uses, he also refuses to pay taxes, taxes that would directly benefit people, black and brown people predominantly, where he puts up his distribution centers. He well, also like uses his leverage to destroy mom and pop businesses, right? So if, if we look through just what a person who controls and has um, a holding over a large stake of capital has the opportunity to do, right, and how they use that power and opportunity, then we might be able to say, like, okay, this might impact more people. Well, I think that makes, so if you think about those things, a lot of that, to me, isn't Bezos coming up with this plan. It's Bezos looking at the structure that exists, the system that exists, and, you know, you you just look at it and you think, okay, well, how am I going to maximize profits in this situation? And then you use this. He didn't make the tax breaks. He can't choose not to pay taxes. The government, they said, why don't you come here and you don't have to pay any taxes? And he said, oh, okay. And then they said, you can pay. You, you don't have to pay this amount of money. And that, that's, that's fine. Like the, these things are, they're set up for him. He didn't set them up. Thus the elegance of white supremacy. Right. Right. Your forebears came here. Their, wi- like, uh, their whiteness that they inherited, they didn't create that. Amazon's like, do you want me <laughs> to? Amazon's like, do you want me to calculate some percentage of money and give it away because I'm paying the taxes that I'm being charged? Right. But if you benefit from a system that's in place that's disenfranchising other people, and you don't feel any type of way about it, that's fucked up. Well, it's also you know it's easy to see now too with the essential workers, right? There you because go. Because you label them essential, and you say. Well, these jobs are going to continue no matter what's going on. Everyone who's not essential, you stay home, stay safe. Yeah. Everyone else has to go to work. And then you and then you find out, oh, well, who are the essential workers, you know? And it's just almost all minorities. And then who's getting sick? Mostly minorities. Who's dying? Mostly minorities. Like, it's a, it exposes it. It makes it very clear. And... You know, you don't have, if you're an essential worker, you don't have a choice. You have to go to work. If they want you to work, you have to work. If you're not, if you're not an essential worker, if you work in a restaurant, the restaurant's not open right now. You get laid off. You get unemployment. You can, you get paid. You stay home. You don't even have to work. There you go. Essential workers, they have no choice. If they want you to work, you have to go to work. But it's why are they working? They're working because most state officials do not want to play unemployment. They would much rather you business. I don't think they're, it's because they don't want a disruption of they don't because what because think about whose life gets disrupted if the grocery stores are closed, then my then my life is messed up. Then I can't go shopping. It's not even about the money. I don't think. I think. I mean, they they could pay the un, they could pay the unemployment. They don't want. They don't want wealthy people to be inconvenienced. There you go. And see me, that's, the, that's what's criminal. You're willing to let people die so that you're not inconvenienced. That, how do you separate that? How is that any, how is that not precisely what was happening during chattel slavery? How were the wealthy people who were the only people that were allowed to vote and were the only people that were white and were the only people that were men able to get away with such shit where someone has to work from sunup to sundown to death it does make you think it does you do sit there and you do think how do you get away with that you get away with it because it's a system and a mm-hmm. structure that was created to maximize profit at the expense of lives that's what that's what america is and until people are able to sit in that space and see themselves it will never change right and the issue like why i brought up you know like you know to be provocative is jeff, is jeff bezos a white supremacist if we can ask that of Jeff Bezos and we can ask that of ourselves as well. Right. Right. How am I? I'm not white, but how am I supporting white supremacy? Uh huh. How are you, you know, Sean Joyce, supporting white supremacists? Am I a white supremacist? If I can't tell the difference between what I'm, how I look and how I behave 
and how I show up and how I demonstrate, there's an issue, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, like we were talking about this in the last part, I had to really see myself as um, a person who uses like power and control to dominate others within my home, right? And so I need to, uh, that's the work I need to do to overcome. Otherwise, um, as my therapist so aptly says, I'm welcoming the white man into my house through me. Yeah. Right? So it's like we all have the work to do. We all have to sit and suffer in, in the shame, or not even just the guilt, right? Because shame can be very toxic. The guilt of knowing that we, ha- we hold privilege and power because of the body that we were born into. And there's more than we can do than just accept that as the way it is. That's, that's unacceptable to me as a father. It's unacceptable to me as, I'm, I'm still a husband, right? It's unacceptable <laughs> to me as a husband. It's unacceptable to me as a brother, a son. That's unacceptable. What can I do? Maybe I can't march every day right. because I have to teach my children, right? And I have to teach them and be healthy and not bludgeoned to death or choking on tear gas, which is a, <laughs> a global crime. Right? How do you, yeah, how do you, uh, like, how do you, how do you reconcile that need to, to do that, mm-hmm. to do that work with, I want to, I want to have a big yard and a goat with my kids and I want to play in this yard with my kids and I yeah. want to enjoy my life. Because you, there's nothing wrong with enjoying your life, right? There's nothing wrong with being happy and experiencing joy. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having But you got to participate in... Sure, but you can't pour from an empty cup, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Like, if I'm constantly browbeaten constantly assaulted and assailed constantly accosted i'm drained i'm diminished my battery is empty i have nothing to pour out of to pour out i have no nothing to pour into that's full of love and kindness and abundance because i'm exhausted so i have to get myself to a space where i'm able and to to follow to my you know to what i'm being compelled to do so you can't pour from an empty cup you can't right so like um what I've been practicing, and I talk, we talked about this at length, you know, during this time, because quite honestly, it's, very, it's been very good for me staying at home, is mindfulness, is awareness, is meditation, is yoga, is exercise, is eating right because I don't go to restaurants. It's recognizing that I don't, I'm a social drinker. I didn't realize that about myself. I, have, I don't really drink now, right. you know what I mean, unless I'm around other people. Um, I love that this period immediately establishes the difference between or delineates the difference between a, a need and a want. Sure. Right? I love that my like checking account balance is, is getting higher and my credit card balance is getting lower. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's these are all the things that that, that that like all I had to do was sit in stillness for a while. Right. It's so hard to. It's so hard to to stop because you're that's the sh- that's the, the fucking business of America is to constantly keep you distracted and productive. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can spend money and be a good American. Yeah. It's the that's by design. That's why there's so many commercials. That's why everybody everything's marketed to you. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like. Coronavirus. And the and the people impacted by covid. Right. Helps you understand. How scary it is not to be able to breathe and to be able to lose your life. And I think like in an homage to George Floyd and Eric Garner and everyone else who was asphyxiated and choked to death by the state, it's, it's really kind of harmonious to think that about what a blessing it is to be able to sit still and breathe in peace. And so if we have that gift and that privilege, and let's ensure that everybody else has it too. Yeah, that's that's beautiful, man. That's that's what I've been sitting on for like. It took it took all it took, like, the collective experience of. The twenty sixteen election, and, twenty seventeen having two friends die one day after the other under forty, and twenty seventeen Dylan dying, and like twenty eighteen, like my father getting cancer 2019 my father dying you know 2019 separating from my wife and and all that like work from that from like 2016 for us where i started marriage counseling 
and then personal therapy and I started like you know uh, yoga when I got married and like mindfulness like six months ago meditation it took all of that to get me to a place where I could sit still long enough and be at peace with myself and be able to think about these things and to think about where my place is in this world and like what what it really means to to be aware of your blessings acknowledge them and to use your place of privilege to help other people well so uh, that was my yeah, four-year journey then uh, you know hopefully you know i would hope that you know it inspires you to think more about your eight-year journey or nine-year journey when you were thinking about mindfulness and awareness and that practice and to go back to it and to think about how can i get sean to a place where sean's good with sean yeah so i can help other people yeah it's a constant work right it's never you can never stop no because when you stop you're done <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well thanks for uh talking with me man you know i love talking to you bro <laughs> this is great i love the birds and the shade yes. sean tried to get me out here in 90 degree heat y'all but luckily he's got a nice lovely tree in his backyard so we're, we're yeah, sit under a big tree <laughs> <laughs> all right man all right mo peace For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com.